Um, and now I want to introduce Corey Williams, who is our campus pastor. Corey, the question is, how do you know God exists? All right. Thank you, Mike. Thanks for queuing us up this, this uh, evening and getting us started. Um, man, this is kind of a crazy idea. In fact, I was thinking this afternoon about, you know, how good this idea felt until this afternoon. And then I was like, why are we doing this? Um, and the truth is, you know, as we look at the, what we're attempting to do here, it's, it's mainly... Um, I don't, I'm not suggesting that what we're going to accomplish in a night like this, and this is the first of a few events like this, I'm not suggesting that what we're going to do is going to be the most persuasive and compelling experience for somebody. Uh, I, I believe that God uses a variety of means to draw people to himself, and convincing arguments is, you know, it's, they're important, but I don't think that they're the main way that somebody comes to uh, a relationship with the living God. And so what I would encourage you to do is to you know, continue to explore some of these topics and interact with other believers and come out to church and see what that's all about. Because I do think that God uses a variety of means to help us uh, address and understand who he is. So here's what we're going to do tonight. Uh, Many of you are members of the McChesney Park campus. So as I think through this, I really do believe it's an opportunity for us to kind of grow our vocabulary of how we would talk about our faith. Um, I hope that, it, that this is useful for you as you think through having faith-based conversations with people at work or people in your, um, in your, at your campus, at your school, or people that you interact with. This is just important stuff for us to be comfortable and familiar with so that we can share it with other people. Um, one of the reasons why we decided to do this, this isn't like a, you know, something we just kind of came up with on our own. Uh, several years ago now, in the youth group that I was leading, we actually did these talks as a series. Um, it was a class that I took in seminary, and I turned everything into talks for the youth group, and we actually did this text question and answer thing every single week. It became one of my favorite features of youth group. It felt like a way to connect with the students who had sincere and real questions and make sure that we weren't just talking past them, but we were giving them opportunities to really dialogue and and ask really important things. And so, if you don't mind, go ahead and get your phone out right now. We'll just get ready for this. If you can, uh, get it queued up so you can text the number. We've got it up on the screen. But if you get that ready, then during the talk, you could ask follow-up questions, and that'll give us some, some material to be able to interact around once we move into the Q&A portion uh, throughout the night. Um, well, let me uh, just begin by telling you what we'll do is we'll look at several different what I think are signposts or pointers to the, the existence of God. So if you're thinking through, does God really exist? Is there any way that I could, you know, come to the conclusion that there's a real God? I think, as a Christian, as a pastor, I do think there are, there are very, there are very uh, compelling proofs that God gives us in his world. There are things that we can look at, and, and uh, they help us to understand there must be a God. And so I'll share them with you. None of them will, will be without their faults. People, I'm sure, have disagreed with these before, but I'm just going to walk us through these different signposts that help us to recognize there is a God. And, and I'll tell you more about him and about his son toward the end. But one of the signposts that he has given us is his creation. God has made the world, and the world that he has made actually gives evidence of himself. And there's a few different ways that you could look at it. One of the things, one of the features of creation that, that really helps us to have to wrestle with if there is a God is simply the fact that we exist, that creation exists, that we're, we're here. And so how can you explain the fact, the givenness that we're here 
without something like a God who made us. Um, I think that our existence points in that direction. And, and what we find out as we go through the ordinary experience of life is that we're dependent people. Not only are we here, but we're, we're, we're dependent upon the provision that God gives us, the things that we um, experience on a day-to-day basis in order for, for our very existence. And Christianity and the Bible present a God who is self-existent and who isn't dependent upon anyone, but he gives us he gives the, the creation that he's, he's made exactly what it needs to, to be sustained. Um, so creation gives us evidence that there is a God. I don't know of another persuasive argument for the fact that we're here, but I do believe that there's a God who made us and that that God loves us and um, has made us for himself. So one of the features is that we exist. The second feature about creation that I think points in the direction of there being a God is the fact that not only are we on a, on a world that's pretty incredible, but it is finely tuned. The world that we live on is very precisely ordered in a way that works. Um, there are things that have to coincide with one another in order for stuff to, to work. In fact, Sir Martin Rees, a Britain astronomer uh, and president of the Royal Society, he's argued that the emergence of human life in the aftermath of the Big Bang is governed by a mere six numbers, each of which is so precisely determined that a minuscule variation in any one of them would have made both the universe and human life as we know them impossible. Uh, an astronomer is looking at the evidence and he's saying, look, this is so precise, it's so finely tuned, that if anything were off, even by a little amount, it would, it would make life as we know it impossible. Um, I was thinking about this recently as my, my wife's car, she calls me and she says, hey, it doesn't work. And you guys that come to our church, you know this car is obviously a disaster, um, but this car, a uh, really nice car, well-designed, we thought we were getting a killer deal, but she calls me up and she says, hey, my shifter is not working. And I'm like, great, okay, so she pops off this little thing, and we have a screwdriver, and she's pushing the little button in there in order to, to do the, undo the safety latch that allows her to shift out of park. And we did that for a couple weeks before I found a deal because this part was very expensive. Now, here's what it was. It was this little piece of metal inside of the shifting mechanism. There were these different servos and things that when you push the brake, it, it tells something to release and all of that was working fine. But it was this little piece of metal that was supposed to have a tension to it that would push against this thing. Okay, this little itty bitty thing, the part's 350 bucks to get it and then to install it. And so I repair the car myself because I don't have 350 bucks to give away um, to other people. So I get the part and I put it in, but here's what's silly about it. This car, well-designed car, this car that all the other features about it work, is rendered inoperable because of this one little piece. Could have been designed right. Could have actually, you know, been designed to work for the long haul and the duration of the vehicle, but it failed. And so that little thing made the rest of the car almost undrivable. If it wasn't for that safety latch feature, it wouldn't, wouldn't even be drivable. And in the same way, when we look at the world, there are so many different variables and so many different factors for how the world is designed and how it operates. It's, it, it seems silly to think, yeah, this probably just worked. It all came together and it just works. And um, some people have pushed back on this, on this argument. They, uh, people who um, are, are committed to, to being against these different ideas, but they'll say things like, you know what, here's, here's probably how it works. Maybe there are so many different universes out there that you just keep multiplying the amount of universes that there are, and we're on this one. We won the lottery 
in the universe that we have. And so, after all of these other universes that didn't come together in this very exact and precise way, we're on the one that maybe did come together that way. And that's why it all works. And for me, I think, wow, that's a stretch. That's, a, that's an interesting argument, but that really feels to me like it's reaching. Um, I don't know about other universes, but I know about this life that, that I'm living. And it feels to me like there is a creator who not only made us, but he made us in a way where everything works together, and it must. And so for me, that's, that's an important feature about creation. Creation points to a creator as we look at the fine-tuning of the world. Here's another feature about creation. When we look at it, what do we find? We actually find beauty and order. If this is all just random and you know, happenstance and things come together and things uh, just kind of work, why is it that everything comes together in such a way that's beautiful and compelling? Why is it that the world is ordered the way that it is? Why is it that we, we find these things that are, that are incredibly beautiful? Why is it that when we go to the Grand Canyon, and if, if you've been there, you can talk to somebody about it and you can look at pictures, but there's something that happens to you when you're standing on the precipice of this giant crater in the ground, this giant canyon. It, the, creation is beautiful, and that beauty tells us something about the creator. And it doesn't feel to me like that's, an, that's accidental. It feels very purposeful that it reveals something about the nature of the one who made it. So creation itself is, is beautiful. It gives us a sense of, of awe and wonder. And as the Bible tells us, it points us to this, this maker. The, the orderliness too, I think is pretty significant. I remember watching uh, the Lego movie with my kids. I've got a five-year-old and a three-year-old and we were watching the Lego movie. And if you've seen it, there's a portion in the, that movie where they go into this kind of hidden world and Batman's there and Emmett's kind of the main character and they go into this world and, and they're looking around and it is just like a party. Like there's all kinds of stuff going on and it feels kind of chaotic and Batman's like, I hate it here. He's looking at the, just how chaotic it is, and he's going, man, this is, uh, I don't like this. But when we look at creation, there's an order to it. There's a, there, you, you look at it, and there are patterns, and there are rhythms, and there are things that, that God has kind of built into the fabric of the world that he has made. And it, I think that all points us to the reality that there is a God, and that he is the one who is beautiful, and he's the one who's orderly. And, and I think that, that um, that's a feature about creation that helps us to recognize that there is a God, and uh, he's a good God. So one of the signposts then is creation, that we exist, um, that it's finely tuned, that there's beauty and order in the world that we live in. But here's another signpost, and I think this one's pretty, pretty neat as well. Humanity itself, people, actually communicate and reveal something of the glory of God. When you look at people, when you look at humanity, there's a built-in dignity about every person that you ever meet. Now, why is that the case? Why do you look at somebody if they're just kind of a conglomeration of cells and they're just kind of some evolved thing, they're just kind of a higher order of animals? Why is it that when we look at a person, there's something about every single person that has this intrinsic value? I mean, those of you that are parents, can you remember when they did the little sonar thing and you heard the heartbeat for the first time of your, your firstborn? There, there is something about that. I just started weeping. Why is it that when we see a human being, even if it's an unborn baby, we, we see or hear something like that and we're moved by it? That, that every person, you look at people who are disabled and you still find this incredible built-in dignity 
and value. Why is that the case? And I think the reason why is because God has made humanity in his image, that we bear the image of God, and every person then points us to, to the maker. So humanity is a signpost to the greatness of God. Another feature about humanity is that we are people who have intense longing. The way that a human being goes through life reveals that we have hearts that are drawn to things. Now, that's a weird feature if we're just kind of some evolution of uh, a lesser species or something like that. It's kind of weird, but human beings, we long for things. We have this kind of built-in worship feature about us. There are things that we we desperately want. We want to know why we're here and what's our purpose. And we want to know, you know, what on earth am I supposed to do with my life? And and we we don't settle for little pat answers like, well, you're, you know, you should just enjoy life and eat good meals and, you know, do whatever you want. We we have this built-in kind of longing for something greater. In fact, um, there's a secularist named John Gray And he puts it like this. He says, animals do not need a purpose in life, but humans, however, cannot do without one. A secularist is saying this is something that he sees, that people have to have purpose. It's just what they do. We gravitate toward trying to explain the life that we're living. So we have this built-in, this longing. And um, Lewis puts it like this. C.S. Lewis says, If I find in myself a desire for which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Lewis is recognizing that longing God put there on purpose. We were made for him. And the reason why we are so unsettled is because until we come into contact with the living God, we're just searching for that. Now, not only do we long in the sense that we're all religious people, we're all kind of worshiping individuals, but when you look at the history of humanity, there's an interesting feature about humanity. Throughout all of the history and all of the cultures, people are religious people. That, that you look at any society, any culture during any period of time, the majority of human beings are religious individuals in the sense that they are trying to connect with this greater power. Why is that the case? Why is it? I mean, that would be weird if, that, if, if there weren't a greater power. It would be weird that the majority of all the people who have ever lived have that thing going on in them that they want to connect with a greater power. That would be a very odd and random reality if it weren't true. But what if there is a God and what if he built that into us? What if we have this longing for him that is a feature of just being a human? So the longing that we have, I think, points to that there is a God. We also have this feature about us that we call morality. Every every person has this sense within them that there are things that they should or shouldn't do. Now, where does that come from if it's not built in by God himself? There are universally accepted morals. I'm sure we have morals that are shaped and influenced by the society that we grew up in, things that we believe are right or wrong according to how we've been taught or raised. But everybody, there's this universal feature about every person that there are certain morals that you don't have to be taught. They're just built into you. Now, where did that come from? Where did that moral compass come from if not the God who made you. God gave us the ability to make evaluations and to recognize, different, different from animals or any other species, we, we have the ability to evaluate things and, and make judgments regarding whether or not they are good and right and wrong. The French philosopher, who's a secular humanist, his name's Luke Ferry, 
And he puts it like this. He says, I've yet to meet anyone, materialist or otherwise, who is able to dispense with value judgments. So he's saying, I've yet to meet somebody who doesn't think in moral categories. He goes on to say the imperatives of the moral life, like truth and beauty and justice and love, they impose themselves as, as if they come from somewhere else. He's saying that human beings just have this, we know that there's right and wrong, and they kind of come, they just show up in our lives. And we don't have to be taught about them. We should be taught on them, but they're a part of being human, that God has given us a moral compass. And I think that points to this God who is beautiful, who is loving, who is merciful, and who does set healthy parameters for us to live in a way that honors him and that is ultimately good for us. So the feature of morality, I think, points to the fact that there is a God who is a good God. Another piece of evidence um, that, that points to the existence of God, so we've, we've looked at a few already. We've looked at creation and we've looked at humanity. But another piece of evidence that points to the existence of God is this book right here, the Bible. Um, it, it is a phenomenal piece of literature. If you're just looking at it as, as kind of merely a writing, you, you, if you study it sincerely, it is an incredible book. It's actually 66 different books written over a tremendous amount of time by people in different stations in life. You have a farmer like Amos, and you've got a physician like Luke, and you've got a fisherman like Peter, and you've got all these different people who are contributing because they, they feel that God has given them a word to share and you've got all 66 of these different books of the Bible, and yet they come together, and there's different styles of writing, there's different genres of literature, you've got poetry in there, you've got psalms, which are kind of the expressions of the heart where people are able to say very honest things, like, God, how is it that the righteous seem to always get dealt a bad hand, and the unrighteous just go on doing life unfazed? They say things like this, why are you so disquieted, soul? Why are you so in turmoil. There's this honesty about the Psalms, and you've got wisdom literature and historical narrative, and you've got letters that are written, and all of that comes together, and it actually creates a one message. This, there's a cohesion. There's this unity about the Bible, which is weird because I can't even write two emails that sound the same. And God, over the course of history, through these different individuals, has written a compelling love story about how he made the world and how he sent his son to redeem that world to himself. And so the Bible is an incredible book, and, and the message that, that's contained there is, is, is just really incredible. I'll share more about that in just a moment. But, but the book itself has an incredible history. As you look at how the Bible has been repressed, and people have tried to do away with it, and burn it, and, and ban it, and all these different things, and, and throughout the course of history, this book has prevailed that it is something that people continue to get their hands on, they continue to read, they continue to, to find this book, and this book finds its way to many, many people, and the history of the book itself is just phenomenal. And um, people who are followers of this book have done many, many great things. On account of this book, there are many advantages. There, there are people who love this book, who have created um, schools and hospitals and social justice reforms and all kinds of different things, because they believe that God has communicated to the world that he's made, and they find in there compelling reasons to align their life to him. Um, people have committed their lives to this book. Um, I was thinking of William Tyndale earlier today and just realizing that there was a guy who was so committed to making sure that the Bible was accessible to ordinary people 
that, that he was willing to lay down his life for that project. And he actually said to the religious leaders who were trying to kind of suppress the book and make sure it stayed out of the hands of ordinary people, he said, he said this, he said, if God permits, and I'm paraphrasing, but he's saying, if God permits me to live long enough, I will see to it that a boy who's running a plow has more knowledge of the scriptures than you. And he was saying this to a religious leader. And he just had this passion that the word of God would be available to anybody. And, and he lived that out and, and even gave his life for it. So the book itself is phenomenal. The Bible is a phenomenal book and the story contained therein is a phenomenal story. But I think that the Bible points to this reality that God is real and he communicates to us and he's given us this gift of his word. Another piece of evidence, another signpost that points to the existence of God is this person, Jesus of Nazareth, this historical individual that everyone has to wrestle with because he had such a big imprint on history. Uh, we mark our calendars by him, and, and everyone you know, thinks about him during certain seasons of the year. But this person, Jesus of Nazareth, he, he was a fascinating individual. And if you study his life just critically, not even as a believer, but you just kind of wonder, okay, what was this guy all about? He kind of defied the norms of what you would think a religious leader should do. And he lived this incredible life, and he made radical claims about himself and his relationship to, to the Father. And he, he claimed you know, equal status with God and the ability to forgive sins. And he claimed that he was the fulfillment of the Bible, which is a pretty insane claim for him to make. But he, he, he made all of these radical claims. And so when we look at him, Jesus of Nazareth, he's actually a very compelling proof that there is a God. I love the argument of C.S. Lewis where he, where he says, look, if you're evaluating Christ, if you're evaluating Jesus, you, have to, you really only have three options. He's only left you with these three options. This guy's either a liar, and he came on the scene, and he's just fabricating, just spinning this story, making himself to sound incredible. But maybe he's a lunatic. Maybe he's just crazy town, and, and he thinks like he is God, but he's just, you know, this, this kind of freak, this lunatic. Or maybe he's Lord. Maybe the claims that he made and the way that he lived and the stuff that he was doing was actually a fulfillment of who he truly was. And I think that when we look at him, if you're willing to honestly evaluate the person, Jesus of Nazareth, I think that's a very, very compelling pointer that there is a God and that God has expressed himself in humanity, in the person of Jesus Christ. So Jesus is another pointer or signpost to the existence of God. Now here's another one. Here's the fifth piece of evidence. The resurrection is a, is a very strong argument for God's existence and the claims that Jesus made. The resurrection is, is something that if you're willing to actually study it, it's very hard to walk away from it without being persuaded that it actually happened. And if you're persuaded that the resurrection was real, that Jesus died on a cross, but he came back from the dead, then it's hard not to make the next step to say, if that's true, then I'm going to listen to this dude. If that's true, if the resurrection really happened, then I'm going to believe the things that he said. This is unique, that a person could die and come back. Now, there, there's a bunch of mock journalism, and it's a very popular way to get published or to have a program to, to come up with a story, a popular story, that maybe the resurrection didn't happen. And you, there are things that I'm sure you've seen on TV or books that are written about this that'll promote this idea of, you know, Jesus didn't really die. He, he was kind of, I forget the technical term that they use, but then he 
resuscitated and he came back to life. Uh, they talk about how you know, this is really what happened. He wasn't truly dead. He, he just came back from this kind of, you know, almost like paralytic state and he comes back to life. And, and there's a lot of stories like that and they actually sell very well because this is fascinating. People go, oh, that, that'd be weird, right? This guy who claimed to come back to the de- from the dead, I wonder if it was just a, a made-up, fabricated story. But real journalism, if you look into the actual event and you look into the sources, it's hard to walk away from that feeling that it didn't actually happen. Um, I'm going to share with you some evidence for it, but, but real journalism locates a historical Jesus that was actually crucified for his radical religious claims and that he came back from the dead and that there were people who saw him and interacted with him and, and spent a period of 40 days together with him. Now, early historians all point in this direction. They all bring their, their story together and confirm that these things happened. People like Josephus and Pliny and Tacitus and Sussetonius, they all write these historical documents that verify that Jesus was a real individual and that he died and that he came back from the dead. Um, Jesus appeared to 500 different people, the Bible tells us, uh, post-resurrection. Now, if that's the case, there are a lot of people then who could confirm that he came back from the dead. And that's exactly what we find in those early documents, that many people saw him after he was crucified. And the effect of that resurrection was very powerful on people. It, it was so, I mean, that's one of the things that I think makes it so compelling is that people who knew Jesus and did life together with him, when they, when they saw him after the resurrection, they were changed individuals. So um, you've, got, you've got James, the, the biological brother of Jesus, born from Joseph, Jesus' uh, earthly father, if you will, and Mary. You've got James, and, and as you're reading through the, the Bible accounts, it appears that he's not that interested in following Jesus. But then, after the resurrection, where does he show up? He's one of the leaders in the movement. He's the, you know, heading up the council of people in Jerusalem. So you, you think about this, okay? Those of you that have siblings, um, and I'm not, this isn't original with me, but what would your sibling have to do to prove that they were God? Right? If, somebody, if your sibling came up to you and said, you know what, um, I'm God, you'd be like, come on. Like, I know better. I know you. Come on. You, you can't fool anybody. And that's, a, I think, how James approached Jesus until the resurrection. And then after that, what do we find him doing? Leading the charge. This guy was radically changed because of the resurrection. Paul, um, Saul of Tarsus, same, same deal radically opposing Christianity and followers of the way. And then he meets Jesus on the road to Damascus and he is a changed individual and he gives his life to the point where he's taking beatings and going through hardship, all for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ. So the resurrection is a powerful thing. The, the early followers, they went from being kind of weenies and running away and being scared. And one dude, Mark, he, you know, he, he's so scared he runs away naked, the Bible tells us, that he runs away without any pants on. But then, after the resurrection, what are they doing? They're marching boldly into the temple courts, proclaiming the name of Jesus in the face of threats and opposition. And they say, what are we supposed to do? He's really alive. We're going to let people know about it. They were changed individuals. The resurrection is a powerful pointer 
to the existence of God and to the claims of Christ. Um, now here's the last one, and then, and then I want to review a little bit. But the last thing that I think personally is the most persuasive for me. I'm not a, I'm not a person who's you know, convinced by arguments. I'm not somebody who, who will sit around and go, okay, tell me your best argument, and then I'll buy into that. Here's what's the most compelling thing about the existence of God for me, personal experience. Um, the pointer to God for me, the signpost to God for me, is the fact that out of all the other options, and I remember kind of going through that phase as a young adult wondering, did I just get raised on something? Do I just believe what my parents wanted me to believe? And I looked at these other religions and I looked at the experiences that other people were having and I wanted to take an honest approach to it. And I looked at all of that and I, I evaluated it pretty, pretty carefully and I thought, you know what? The most compelling, comprehensive story of all of the details is Christianity, far and away to me. It, it gives us the most beautiful picture of the world that we find ourselves in and the hope that we have for the transformation. It really is a beautiful thing. And so I join C.S. Lewis in putting it like this. I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. I believe in Christianity because to me it has become this beautiful guiding light for my life, that it helps me to know that there is a God and that this world, as broken as it is, it makes sense and that there's a God who loves us and is redeeming us and making things right again. The story of the Bible, I told you I'd tell it to you, and it's really this incredible story that though God had made creation, creation has rebelled against him. Creation, one of the reasons why I think a lot of people don't believe that there's a God is, is because we want to be God. One of the reasons why we don't want to even acknowledge that maybe he does exist and maybe I should be living for him is because that would mean I would have to relate to him in some kind of way. And that's exactly the story of the Bible, that though creation was made by him, it rejects him. It says, we don't want you. We don't care about your opinion. We'll we'll figure out what's right and wrong on our own. We'll do it our own way. And that rebellion, sin, has actually affected everything. The world that we live in is now reeling as on account of turning away from its life-giving source. And that brokenness in the world is something that God is very aware of. And he had a plan. He has a plan to, to bring the world back together to him. And the, the story that the Bible presents to us is that he chooses the people and he says, I'm going to set my affection on you so that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through you. And that people, the story goes on for a long, long time, but that people become this vehicle of God communicating his love to his world. And, and then this child is born, this incredible one, this virgin, um, born of a virgin, this, this one that we call Messiah. And it was Jesus, and it was God saying, I'm, I'm going to send my very son into this world, and he's going to show humanity and creation itself what it looks like to live in harmony with the maker. And he's going to do that perfectly. And Jesus then laid down that perfect life because he was willing to be a substitute for rebellion. He was willing to pay the penalty for sin, and he was willing to uh, offer himself as a sacrifice of atonement so that we could be made right with God again. And then he resurrected, as I already said, and he promises that he's going to return again, and that's the hope that we have as Christians. That's the storyline of the Bible, that Jesus is coming back again. And we believe that there's a God, and we believe that God has shown us what he's like in the person and work of Jesus, and we trust him. And so one of the reasons why we do this as a church Events like this, a public forum, is because we want to introduce that Savior to as many people as possible. 
we want to let people know there actually is some very good and compelling proof that there is a God and he loves the world that he's made and he's doing something in this world. So that's it for my first talk. And uh, I'm going to invite the guys to come on up. Um, I'm going to introduce you guys if you don't mind. Uh, we're going to hop up now and we're going to take a few different questions. I've got Phil. I've known Phil. You can come on up for known Phil for a number of years. I, uh, we're, we're like-minded. He went to the same school that I went to, that I'm presently going to, I guess. And um, practicing law for a handful of years, then felt called to ministry, went to Trinity, did an MDiv at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Deerfield, uh, served at a church for a, a stretch, and then um, left that church but continued to write theological journals and uh, published a little systematic theological devotional book that we pass around uh, here at the Machesney Park campus. We like it a lot. Um, so thank you, Phil, for being with us and uh, for fielding some questions. We've got Dwight here as well. Dwight, um, I'm not sure if I'm going to get anything right here because you are so guarded, but PhD in Old Testament studies from Southern, another PhD from somewhere else, years in pastoral ministry, uh, denominational leader. I could go on and on, but uh, these guys probably should have been doing the talk. Um, I have a degree from Hananiga High School. It's called a high school diploma. But we're going to take some questions and uh, see how this goes. All right. How does a Christian answer the objection that God doesn't exist and that as a non-believer, they don't need to prove a negative? Not sure if I fully understand the question, so let me read it again. How does a Christian answer the objection that God doesn't exist and that as a non-believer, they don't need to prove a negative. Feel free to jump in. Well, if, if I... Oh yeah, grab the microphones off. I'll be able to hear you a little better. So I, if I understand the question, I think it's basically putting the, the burden on Christian, uh, the Christian to make the case because if you're a non-believer, it's, it's essentially impossible to prove something as a negative, it doesn't exist. And so as the Christian, you have the burden to um, make the proof. So how would you respond to that? Well, uh, one way that I would would be do something like Corey. I mean, I, because I do think there are reasons for why we believe that God exists. Um, I would want to try to share those reasons with the person. Um, so I guess I would uh, respond by dialoguing with them and starting to get into the evidence and hopefully um, moving the needle uh, at least slowly tr by sharing with them, trying to get it, uh, them to see that uh, at least that maybe the, the uh, existence of God is maybe somewhat plausible and implausible, and hopefully as we went. Um, so I guess I would begin there. That's great. That's great. Yeah, I, I would agree with that, and I would agree with what you said uh, at the opening, Corey. Um, at the Enlightenment era, there were a lot of so-called proofs of God existence that were created, and, and uh, uh, it's based on rationalism that you go bang, 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 therefore there must be a God. And, and, and I'll just tell you, they, none of them convinced me. Uh, and in my experience, most people aren't convinced by them. 
and the point is to, to really come back on the personal testimony as you did at the beginning. What is it that compresses, impresses you about God? And, and, and I'm like Corey. For me, it's creation. I, you know, I look at what all is out there. I can't imagine anything else other than that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can work down through the things that way. Will that persuade people? Maybe, maybe not. It's not everybody accepts the gospel. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's no reason to get in a fight about it. Uh, and you're not going to prove God to anybody. All you can do is give testimony to this is how I experience God, and this is how I experience the universe that I believe God created. Yeah, I love that. And, um, you know, I think just being honest with them that we're, we're probably not going to argue them into the kingdom. You know, I think, I think a lot of apologetics, which is kind of what this forum is about, uh, it's done in a very poor way because it assumes that it's an argument and that you want to win the argument. And at the end of the day, what we want to do is win people to the Lord. And so we're not trying to present some case that, that can't be refuted. We want to present the beauty of our Savior. And so I think, you know, we, we want to invite people into an environments where they can experience that Savior. And, and it's probably not going to be this, um, you know, setting like this, to be honest, it's probably going to be a relationship that you have and you're just developing, you know, like, like we've talked about, you're just, you're showing them your own experience and you're helping them to see that this is a possibility and, and the burden of proof, you know, sure, we'll take it. We'll, we'll, we'll take that on ourselves. We'll say, yeah, fine. We'll, we'll try to prove to you that there is a God because there really is. And there's a lot of evidence. So I'm just going to keep trying to point you to that reality. God does exist and he loves you and and he wants you, you know, so I think we can, we can take that posture. Let's go ahead and do uh, our second question. Why do people who wrote the Gospels have contradicting details about the same story? Good question. Um, I'll, I'll jump in real quick. So if you go on a vacation with your family, and then you all get home, and you're sitting around talking about that vacation, it could sound a lot different. Like, were you on the same trip? And it, it just is a matter of perspective, and it's the way that every story works, that there are going to be uh, different points of emphasis that, that different people are going to kind of highlight. And I think with the four different Gospels, there's a reason why God gave us four, is because we need, we need um, to be able to see that this, the, the things that really happened, we can look at it from all these different angles. And what appears to contradict, they're not actually contradictions, they're just different perspectives on the same event of the life and ministry of Christ. Anything you guys want to add? I, I think the perspective point is, is, is really important, and, and also understanding how the Gospels came to us. I mean, they're written 30 to 75 years after Jesus was around, and that's a long time to remember a lot of details, even when you're under inspiration. And so uh, I, I think that the different perspectives give us some some view into the reality of what was going on then and the way people responded to what what was happening around them. The other thing I think to remember is some of those details, if there is, if there is a difference in them, maybe they're not that important and we shouldn't get hung up on them. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, nothing to uh, much to add. Ex- um, it is important to understand that each of the gospel writers is trying to um, make a particular point about um, the importance of Jesus' life and, and his ministry while he was here on earth. And I think um, that has a, uh, that explains a lot about why they p- uh, pick particular details um, to share 
and others not to. Um, and so, you know, if you're trying to highlight something that you, um, I mean, because the Gospels are relatively short when you think about the entirety of Jesus' life. So they're trying to, in a nutshell, encapsulate who they saw Jesus to be. And they're picking those uh, elements that make that point best. And they uh, tend to supplement each other more than they um, could in any way contradict each other. Sure. Good, good. Well, let's do another question. Let's see what else we have. Um, if God commanded thou shalt not murder, how come so much violence in the Old Testament? Yeah, great. That's good thing all. we have an Old Testament. Yeah. To, uh, all right, Dwight, it's on you. We're clueless up here. I guess it's confession time. I struggle with that. I'll just tell you straight out, it, it's a problem. I mean, there are some scary things that happen in the Old Testament, uh, and it's not just the bad guys doing them. Uh, and, you know, I, you know I, I have to fall back on either, you know, there's something more going on here that I really don't understand right now, and I'll just say that straight out. I don't understand it. Uh, or maybe they were mistaken about what they understood they were supposed to be doing. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the Old Testament, even more so than the New Testament, partly because it's longer, uh, is, is graphic in its detail of, of the reality of human life. Uh, and not everything in there is, is something to be lifted up and to be lived out. I mean, there, there's some really nasty stuff in there. Uh, and, and, but it's, to me, that's a sign of how honest, the, the, especially the Old Testament is. It, there's no gloss over there about what's going on. I mean, you, you read through the lives even of some of the pe people we consider the patriarchs and say, man, yeah, I don't know how that happened. Uh, <laughs> Uh, it shouldn't have been that way. So I, to me, the thing is to, is to just be honest about it. Yeah, that's a problem. And, and, and say, I don't know what to do with some of that. Uh, as, as Christians, our, our perspective is the Old Testament's interpreted through the eyes of Christ or through, through, through Christ. And we have to say, is that, so we have to say, is that really the way we're supposed to behave? Now, regardless of what was happening back then and how confused we may be about that, does that... Uh, uh, jive, does it coordinate, is it in harmony with what Christ was telling us? Because Christ is the final revelation. So. Um, I would um, agree wholeheartedly with that. I think, um, see, one of the problems with a general question like that is you, you, you have to look at each individual instance to probably come up with the correct explanation for why that's there. Um, but if you did that, you would get to points where like, I, I don't know how to explain that. Yeah. Um, but there are some that we can explain. I think this, this probably jumps ahead um, to something Corey's going to talk about in the next section. Sometimes the Bible is simply recording what happened. It's describing it. It's not saying, hey, this is how you ought to act. Um, uh, one that comes to mind is, you know, in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, where you have uh, Lot offering his daughters um, to, to spare the angels. There's nothing in that count that says, oh, yes, this, this is how one ought to act in this situation. It's, it's what he did. Um, and I think that it is, it, the, the Bible as a whole in the Old Testament um, in particular is honest about yep. these things. This is what happened. We're not going to whitewash it. Mm -hmm. um, but so you do have to keep that in mind as well as you're looking at any specific instance. But that probably doesn't answer all of the yeah. The questions. Yeah. And, you know, I, obviously that's such a heavy question. And I do think the approach that Dwight took, like if we, if we can get people to see what Christ has done, 
when he exhausted the wrath of God on himself at the cross and the beauty of the grace that's, that's given to us, um, even if we can't explain why those different events happened. Um, and, and for us to be honest about that, I do think that's compelling because people say, okay, these guys don't think they know everything. And the humility and authenticity, I think, goes a long way in uh, giving us some credibility. But, but to move them to the beauty of what Christ has done and the hope that we have as believers and, and what that means for us and how that changes the way that the people of God interact with who we would call enemies. I mean, that you know, Jesus is teaching to love our enemies and, and we get this incredible calling then to be agents of God's grace in the world. Um, yeah, I think that's a great, great approach. So let's go ahead and do another question. Does God expect believers to be members of a church? Good question. Members in quotation, I like that. Do you guys want to jump in on this one? They hear me talk about this, so they probably know my opinion. Well, I, I guess it uh, probably depends on how you're going to define members. I mean, I, I would say God certainly wants um, individuals to be part of the church as capital C because... Um, he wants people to believe in his son, and that's kind of when you become part of the church. Um, and the New Testament as a whole, when you look at it, it's clear that there is an expectation that you are going to be in fellowship with a body of believers. Um, so I think that would be the expectation that you are interacting and being influenced and influencing other um, believers. I don't think it goes further than that. I don't think you have to sign any particular documents. Um, there's no uh, outline that says you must go to three and only three <laughs> membership classes uh, or six or seven. I, there's nothing that goes through that. There are many churches that choose to do that for different reasons, and um, but I don't think we can say those are requirements sure. laid out. Sure. I think part of the problem, as you alluded to at the beginning, is how we understand member. Uh, and, and for us in this country right now, it sounds too much like the country club or, or the gym or, or something else that we're joining. And, and, and that's really not what we're talking about. I, I do believe that the, no, the norm in the New Testament is for individual Christians to be in covenant fellowship with other Christians, which is what, what a church is all about. Mm -hmm. uh, member may not be the best word, but... but uh, this flitting about around from one place to another, uh, you know, shopping continually and never belonging any place, never settling down, never abiding any place, I don't think is supposed to be normative for Christians. Sure, yeah. And you guys know, as I'm trying to push people toward through a membership process here at our site, I, I do think there are advantages to leveraging what's not necessarily prescribed by the Bible, as Phil is saying. It's not something that God said, hey, go to your membership class and then sign a document. But I do think a process like that is helpful for us to kind of express our commitment to one another. And uh, I don't think you can read the New Testament and go, yeah, there were a lot of Christians who weren't really engaged with other Christians. Like they just didn't do life together. It would be impossible to even fulfill some of the commandments that God has given us to do with one another if we weren't aware of who one another is. And so I think a process helps us to kind of say, in our society that's so, like Dwight was saying, we just, we're non-committal. So if we can do something as a church that helps people to commit and set down roots and, and uh, express love, and you know, we were talking earlier this morning, there are going to be moments where there's conflict, but we, we need then to have relationships where we feel so committed to one another 
we're going to pursue reconciliation even if that's hard. And I think membership gives us that, that uh, platform. So good, good question. All right, let's do another one. In the Bible, there are all kinds of magical situations that happened, such as parting of the Red Seas and turning water into wine. Why don't these situations happen anymore? Uh, good, good question. Um, who, was it Lewis that said one of the greatest stunts that the devil has performed is making us believe he doesn't exist? I do think that in our setting, we don't see the prevalence of these incredible things that we read about in the scriptures. We don't see these phenomenal and just unexplainable events. I wouldn't even necessarily call them magical, but I'd call them, you know, things that God is doing that disrupts the natural order. And we kind of go through life and we go, I don't see that very, you know, I don't read, you know, articles about it or anything else. Here's what I, what I have found to be true. I think Lewis was right. I think that we have an enemy who doesn't want us to believe that there's a God who's powerful and able to do that stuff. And one of the strategies I think he employs in our setting is he just doesn't, he doesn't you know, do that kind of stuff here, and he doesn't want us to see that kind of stuff. But I do think if you travel the world, uh, that there are events that are happening today that would blow your socks off, that you would be unable to explain other than that was God at work. And so I think um, we, we have to factor in our enemy in, in the discussion. What do you guys think? Uh, I believe in miracles. I've seen them. Uh, you know, miracles aren't a problem for me. I think the implied thing here is, is the problem. For me. Why doesn't it happen more often? <laughs> uh, you know, I have prayed in vain at times, it seems like. Uh, and and uh, that troubles me a lot more than, than the, the unexpected, spectacular things I see. Um, and I, I have to settle in that uh, uh, God is at work in ways that I don't understand most of the time. Uh, and uh, you know, trust that uh, and, and know that uh, things happen unexpectedly sometimes, both positive and negative. Uh, and, and uh, know that uh, you know th this is being worked out somehow, uh, but uh, I think in our day and time in our culture, it, it's hard to to uh, pull up miracles as a positive proof about things because we see so much stuff that's that's technical, that's miraculous as you look at it, mm -hmm. and, and we've become kind of uh, immunized against those kinds of things. Oh, sure. But as you mentioned, you go to other places in the world and there's stuff that just knock your socks off uh, and, and they seem to be more open to it and more prepared to see it than we are. Mm -hmm. That may be part of it. I don't know. But I, I, I believe in miracles. I've seen them. Uh, I don't understand why it doesn't happen more often. Yeah. And I think, you know, when we look at the Bible too, you see seasons, you know, you see there are seasons when dramatic things are happening, miraculous things are happening just nonstop over the course of time, and then you kind of see periods of lull where it's not as prevalent. And so I, I don't look at that as being an issue that disproves God or what he's doing anymore. I just think, I don't, I don't know why it's not as prevalent right now. And like you, I want to pray that those things are happening, that we see them in our ministry and we see them uh, in our own experience. And, and, and even if it doesn't happen, I'm still going to be trusting that God is able to do that and, and, um, and believe that he does do that. In different places. Well, and I was I was gonna want to piggyback on that because I think sometimes that there's this sense that oh, miracles were happening constantly 
in the Old Testament period or the New Testament period. And kind of when you look at the time frame, if you were to lay out the Old Testament history and look at the uh, miraculous events that are being described, you would not see it as perhaps as the regular occurrence that we are. Because, I mean, remember, they seem to be caught by surprise when all these things are happening, which is an indication that it wasn't an everyday event. You know, they were probably blown away by the Red Sea parting. Uh, for example, they weren't like, oh, this is this what happens, happens all on the time. Tuesday or whatever. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, so I think when you think about it, that as often, it, it may be more similar than, than we think. Because, um, and of course, in the New Testament, you have um, a, something unique in terms of Christ's death and resurrection. So as the church is being um, created, it's not that surprising that you might have seen uh, more miraculous things on a, on a perhaps a more regular basis. But I don't know that our impression of how often they were happening is accurate. Right on. Well, hey, let's do this. I'm going to give you some instructions for what we're going to do next. I'm going to pray here in just a moment, but then we'll go to break time. And we were talking about the weather earlier, and so we want to try to um, get you out of here sooner than later so that we can get home safely. Um, so our break, which we slated for a half hour, we'll abbreviate that. We'll do um, a 10 or 15 minute break and we'll, we'll uh, let you know when we're going to start. We'll put the countdown up on the screens so you can see that in the lobby and you can see that in here. And uh, we'll get going a little quicker on the next one and, um, and then we'll do our Q&A at the end. So I'm going to pray and then we'll dismiss for our break. All right, Lord, thank you so much that you've given us an opportunity to talk about these things. Thank you, God, that you can use this kind of event to help us better understand who you are. And uh, we, we pray that events like this would draw people to your son. Um, we're just trying to, to do everything that we can to help people know the saving grace that you've, that you've given us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so I thank you for the conversations we've had so far. I pray for our um, break time now and the um, just the small talk that we're going to have that isn't small talk, I pray that you, would, that you would just bless our conversations and the rest of our night, please, in your name. Amen.